I'd invite you to stand, if you're not already, to Romans chapter 1. And let me read for you our text from verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul writing to the saints in Rome, saying, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So ends the reading of the text. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. As we come to Romans 1, 16 and 17, let me remind you that these verses serve as a transition for us. It is a transition from Paul's introducing himself and introducing what he desires to accomplish not only in a visit to Rome but even beyond all of that. And then he brings uh, his readers to the main thrust of his letter. Let's see if I can do this without falling apart. Paul's great desire we have read in verse 17. Let's see, here we go is to, uh, in verse 15, excuse me, is his eagerness to preach the gospel to those who were in Rome, eager to go to a place where he had never been before. I don't know how many of you have ever taken a trip. Uh, I remember when we went to Israel several years ago, and you're in a foreign place, and the last thing you might be thinking about doing is standing up and talking to a bunch of strangers about things you don't know how they're going to receive it. But Paul, in verse 15, is eager to preach the gospel because he said in the preaching of the gospel, he has the opportunity to see the fruit of these believers and even to gain some more fruit of seeing others come to Christ, this glorious truth of the gospel of God's Son. Let me remind you that these two verses serve as, we might say, Paul's thesis statement. If you've ever had to write a thesis statement for a college paper, here's his big idea. Here's the, the key point that he's going to flesh out through the rest of the, the letter. And with this in mind, we need to recognize these verses then are this bridge between Paul's introducing himself and, and bringing us into the main content, we might say the, the meat of the letter that actually begins in verse 18, and he begins with some very heavy meat, does he not? The delightful truth of the wrath of God being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. But before he gets to this topic of God and his wrath, Paul is trying to plant in his readers' minds these key ideas, and there are three phrases in verses 16 and 17 that I would have you grasp onto. You might want to make note of these. The first is the gospel. We need to know what is the gospel. The second phrase found in verse 17 is the righteousness of God. What does Paul mean when he speaks of the righteousness of God? Of God. We need to be careful that we don't impose our own thinking on that, but what is Paul, what does he have in mind? And then the final phrase is that phrase from faith to faith. So the gospel, of course, is the good news concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ, by which the justice of God was met so that we who believe in Christ and his work on the cross may be, as Paul would say, justified, declared righteous in God's sight, that we may be forgiven our sins 
And this is a great truth, that by all of this we may be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God so that we are enabled, we, we are enabled to know God better and serve him better. The righteousness of God is a loaded statement, one that Paul will be painstakingly explaining throughout the letter. And it is a concept that needs to be rightly understood if anyone is to experience newness of life and the promise of, of the joy that is ours in Christ. As we'll come to see, when Paul speaks of the righteousness of God in this letter, I want to get plant this idea in you. When Paul speaks of the righteousness of God throughout this letter, he primarily has in mind the righteousness of Christ. And we'll, we'll explain that in just a moment, but we'll explain this in the form of what we call Christ's active obedience, that when Christ came, he actually did something. He actually lived out a life of obedience to God. He was actively involved in doing the things that any one of us should be doing if we would be followers of God, but none of us are capable of doing because of the sin nature. This is Christ's active obedience. But there's also what we will come to recognize as Christ's passive obedience, and that's when he allowed himself to be hung on a cross where he bore our punishment on the cross. He took our sins to the cross that was done to him, and that was his passive obedience. When Paul begins to speak of the righteousness of God, I want you to think in terms of the perfection of Christ in how he lived his life and the perfection of his sacrifice for us on the cross. And the final phrase that we'll be fleshing out is this phrase from faith to faith. One that reminds us that rather than the common notion that was true in Paul's day, and a common notion that's true for so many in our culture today, is this idea that we must do religious works in order to obtain a right standing with God. That if we do the right things, if we go to church enough, if we memorize enough verses, if we have more good things in our lives than bad things, that somehow that earns us God's favor. And yet favor that's earned is not favor. That's the problem. True salvation, we'll come to learn, is based upon the righteousness of Christ. As displayed through the atonement, it is the righteousness of Christ, the work and merit of Christ alone, apart from anything that we do or can do, that saves sinners. And this righteousness, as we'll come to see, is only received by faith. It begins with faith. And it ends with faith. Last week we introduced these two verses, noting that they each offer us a point to consider. And the first point we examined last week was this, Paul's contemplation of the gospel. In verse 16, we noted that Paul was working through some of the highlights, as it were, of the gospel. This message about Jesus Christ that he was so eager to preach so that it would be rightly understood and he began with a very interesting declaration, not one that we might think this is the first thing I want to tell everybody about the gospel. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The message about the person and work of Christ was not something that caused Paul to feel uneasy. It was not something they said, I don't know if I want to share it because it might offend somebody. I don't know if I want to tell people about Jesus because they might think that I'm foolish it might actually put up some kind of stumbling block for them we challenged ourselves last week and at our home bible fellowship on thursday to answer the question 
what are some ways in which we might even unwittingly communicate that we are ashamed of the gospel? Well, there's times when we just say, I don't know that I'm going to say anything right now because, well, I don't know how it's going to be received. We find that Paul is giving us a completely different example. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel, verse 15, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul wanted people to know that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, is the Son of God. He wanted people to know that he was a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and that he is the Son of God, who is truly God. Paul was not ashamed to speak of this one as he who died on a cross for his people, that he took the punishment that they were due, their sins upon himself. He was not ashamed to say this one was humiliated, hanging naked and exposed on the cross, being forsaken of God, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, that Jesus Christ would do all of this in the stead, in the place of those who could only do but one thing, and that's believe. Paul was not ashamed to make this kind of declaration because he knew something so gloriously true about the gospel. How could you be ashamed of the gospel that is, Paul says there in verse 16, the power of God, the mighty strength of God to take those who have been dwelling in darkness and to move them into the kingdom of the light of his son. He knew the power of God was able to take those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, alienated and hostile in mind to God, and to make them alive together with Christ, to cause them to have joy in what Christ has done for them. Paul knew it was the power of God that brings about what we call the second birth, regeneration, a conversion to him who is glorious and wondrous and desires to have a relationship with the likes of us. Paul believed the power of God results, we said last week, in salvation. He knew it is the power that of God that rescues the perishing sinner, not the power of man. He knows that it's the power of God that brings a sinner out of damnation. He knew it was the power of the gospel that delivers the sinner from his deserved fate of eternal condemnation. This is how Paul contemplates the gospel, this good news about Jesus. He makes this declaration. He says in verse 16, this gospel that is the power of God that results in salvation, it is available to everyone, everyone who believes. It does not matter your ethnic background. It doesn't matter your social economic standing. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're academically wise or if you don't know that much. The one thing you must know is who the gospel is pointing to, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's just a quick survey of what we did last week, and it brings us to our second point that we consider now more fully this morning, and that's Paul's communication of the gospel in verse 17. In verse 17, we read, For in it, that is the gospel, the power, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Let me remind you that in verse 17, it's in the middle of a series of reasons that Paul has given 
why he's eager to preach the gospel. Paul, why are you so eager to preach the gospel? Why would you go out of your way to go to a strange place that you've never been before and tell people about the gospel? And so there are four con uh, connective conjunctions. If you note them in your Bibles there, it's the word for. There's two in verse 16, one in verse 17, and one in verse 18. Why is Paul eager to preach the gospel? Because the gospel is nothing to be ashamed of, verse 16. And then he says, it's nothing to be ashamed of because, for, it is the power of God that results in salvation to everyone who believes. Why would I be ashamed of something, and why wouldn't I be eager to preach that which saves people? And it is the power of God resulting in salvation for everyone who believes, for, or because, it reveals, it makes known to us, here's the great statement in verse 17, the righteousness of God. Whatever Paul has in mind when he says the righteousness of God, he says this is the reason why the gospel is so glorious and I must preach it because the, the righteousness that may become the sinner's own righteousness has been revealed and can be received by faith. And then finally, he says this righteousness that is to be owned by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ is necessary, verse 18. Why? For or because... The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth of the gospel in the way they live. In other words, you're only going to have two pathways. You either come to God through the righteousness that he will provide or you will suffer the wrath of God. But they're both the reasons why he's eager to preach the gospel. In verse 17, we are considering this third reason why Paul is eager to preach the gospel. Again, he says the gospel reveals, it puts on display the righteousness of God. And this morning, there are three things I'd have you note with me about the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God revealed, the righteousness of God received, and the righteousness of God rehearsed. And we begin with the righteousness of God revealed. Note again, Paul says, for, because in it, it meaning the gospel, by means of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A proper proclamation of the gospel must reveal the righteousness of God. The message of the gospel and a right understanding will bring a person to see the righteousness of God. I submit to you that a gospel presentation that lacks some form of communicating the righteousness of God is not rightly communicating the gospel. Many have stumbled seeking to understand what Paul is communicating in these verses. Because if you read them, and you read them with just a slight twist in it, you're going to end up in a very dark place. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then the very next verse says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And a man like the, by the name of Martin Luther really struggled with this because he equated, always equated, the righteousness of God with the wrath of God. The righteousness of God must mean God is so holy and so righteous, he's so set apart from sinners that all he can do is bring down his wrath upon the guilty sinner. And so... By his own testimony, Luther hated this phrase. He said, I hate the phrase, 
the righteousness of God because all it brings to my mind, this is before he was saved, all it brings to my mind is God's condemnation, God's wrath, God's punishment. For Luther, he equated that righteous character which God is in his own nature And he saw this phrase as an attribute then, not of any mercy, but God's justice in himself. A strictness by which the just and holy God must, he believed, out of necessity, punish us for our sins. Now, to be sure, the Bible expressly teaches that God is absolutely just. He's absolutely right. And he is completely holy. And it also teaches us that he must punish sin. But do you know in so many references that speak about God's needing to punish sin, we also find simultaneously that God is not just the God of wrath and the God of justice and the God of punishment, but he's a God of love and compassion and mercy. We see this, interestingly enough, in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It's interesting that in the midst of a list of attributes that are pleasant to us, these would be things we delight in. This is what everybody wants to hear. But he does tag on at the end uh, one of these darker attributes. It says, Then the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. Now, aren't these the things you want to hear today? This is what you put in the Hallmark card, right? God is compassionate and gracious. Our God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Our God is the one who keeps loving kindness for thousands and and forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And then he throws in the pesky one. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty, what? Unpunished. In other words, God is right and God is righteous to be compassionate. God is right to be gracious and slow to anger. God is right and righteous to be abounding in loving kindness and truth. God is right and righteous when he forgives iniquity. But God is equally just, equally right when he punishes the guilty. And who are the guilty? Well, Paul will say in Romans 3.23, those very familiar words, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But goes back even further than that. In Ezekiel 18, verse 20, we read this very pertinent statement. The person who sins will what? You will die. The person who sins must die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Who among us is without sin? Who of us in here has not violated God's holy commandment? Not one of us. Paul will go to great lengths to explain that in Romans 3. But for now, we recognize God is righteous, God is just, and he is true when he punishes sinners. And what is the punishment? Paul will tell us later that the wages of sin is death. Death equals separation. And 
The death Paul speaks of is an eternal separation from the blessings of eternal life in God's presence left to, an eternal, left to eternally endure God's wrath, which our sins, endure, uh, sins deserve. All of this, all of this, beloved, is the righteousness of God. It is what Scripture teaches us. But the problem that Luther had, as well as so many have, is that they miss what Paul had in mind when he speaks of the righteousness of God in this moment. Let me offer you three reasons why Paul had something more in mind than simply the judgment of God and the punishment of God in these verses. First, the righteousness of, which God, uh, of God, which Paul speaks of in our text, has been directly linked to what? To the gospel. It has been directly linked to the gospel of which Paul is not ashamed of. The fact is that the, the, the truth that God must punish our sins. If I tell you the soul that sins dies, all of you have sinned, therefore all of you must die, that is not good news. That is the worst possible news that I could communicate to any one of you. That you are all sinners and that you deserve to die, to be eternally separated from God. And yet I would submit to you that this teaching of the righteousness of God, which is consistent with Scripture, that God must punish sinners, then is the most terrible news you would ever deliver. But all of, and this, all of this is what Luther focused his attention on, and it drove him nearly insane. Well, the second reason that I give to you why Paul must have something more in mind than this judgment because he speaks of it as being good news and being called sinners who must die is not good news. The second is that the righteousness of God must be some righteousness, as Paul is speaking of, that makes us acceptable in God's sight. That we actually can stand before God. That in the gospel, there's a righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, I can believe something and be right with God. So it is not a righteousness that leads to condemnation, as Luther was at first thinking of, but a righteousness that leads to a converted life. It's in a life that can be lived to the glory of God. And third, the righteousness that uh, is presented here is a righteousness that Paul says is receivable. It is from faith to faith. It is received by faith and faith alone. It is a righteousness that can cover all our sin, all our unrighteousness, so that why? Why do we need this? Well, Paul's about to tell you why do you need to be delivered from your, un your unrighteousness? Why do you need to be delivered from your sin? Verse 18, for the wrath of God is being revealed and it's culminating, it's building. One of the reasons why it would be necessary, would be easy, excuse me, to focus on the righteousness of God as his absolute nature and character, a character that would prohibit any kind of sin to be in his presence, and a righteousness that condemns any sin is because what I believe to be really a, uh, maybe a mistranslation of this particular text. Yes, I'm going to change it for you all today, okay? I'll, I'll tell you why. Even our modern translations are unclear in this regard because of the way it says it. It says, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God 
is revealed. Well, it's kind of ambiguous. What does that mean of God? Does it belong to God? Is it, is it from God as a source? Well, I would submit to you that the way Paul wrote this in the Greek speaks of a righteousness as having its origin or source in or from God. And so a better translation of this verse, one that brings a lot more clarity, is to say, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness from God is revealed. And uh, our friends who translated the NIV, and I don't often say this, actually got it right. Okay, uh, uh, You can go ahead and cursor through all of those there. But the NIV actually gets it right. The complete Jewish Bible, uh, Jewish Bible says, for in it is revealed how God makes people righteous in his sight. There's something that we can receive from it. Paul is saying that there's a righteousness that is God provided, a righteousness that is God approved, a righteousness that is connected to the gospel, which enables the, uh, an, an unbeliever to be made completely acceptable in God's sight and a righteousness that is received by faith alone that enables the sinner to escape the wrath of God do them for their unrighteous living. Now, then, I would have to say that that is actually good news. You see the distinction that we're making? That's good news. This God-provided righteousness that covers all our sins and forgives all our self-righteousness, our self-righteousness, which is described in Isaiah 64, 6 as being nothing more than like bloody, putrid, rotting, filthy rags. And what is this righteousness that's, that's not our own? It is nothing short of the spotless, blameless, perfect righteousness of Christ. A righteousness which God himself, Paul will say, freely gives or to take on a theological term that God imputes, that God charges to the account of the, the sinner the moment he or she places faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God, as will be explained by Paul throughout this letter, then speaks, listen, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily of the righteousness of Christ. When you see that phrase, I want you to think about Christ's life, his active obedience and his passive obedience. We need to recognize that it's Christ, the God-man, who worked out all of these things for us as our legal head, our representative. Christ did this by those two means that we spoke of, his active obedience where he lived out his life perfectly. He lived out the commandments of God on our, our behalf, the commandments that we broke. There's an interesting verse in the middle of Matthew chapter 5 that maybe doesn't get as much uh, notoriety because we're all excited about the Beatitudes on the first part, and then Jesus breaks out into the, you have heard it said before, but I say to you. And right in the middle of that, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said this, he said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What is Jesus saying? I've come to do all of that which you yourselves could never do for yourself. Jesus is doing something that no other person had been able to do. And that is to fulfill every detail of the law. And as we'll come to know in our study of Romans, it is because Jesus perfectly kept God's law. He demonstrated that by his active obedience, that his work and his merits by God's grace may now be received by the sinner 
imputed to the sinner, given to the sinner, charged to his account, so that now he may be saved. Because it's not about him any longer. It's about the perfection of Jesus Christ and his act of obedience. It is this act of obedience, this utter right, utterly righteous life that makes us acceptable to God and enables us to stand before God's infinite righteousness without, and I love this, without fear, without guilt, without shame, without condemnation. What would Paul say in Romans chapter 5, verse 1? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is that so important to be in Christ Jesus? Because God sees his perfect righteousness as being yours. What a, what a gift. That's good news. Now, we just spoke of the active obedience of Christ by which he lived out his life perfectly on our behalf. Again, the passive obedience of Christ is Jesus' atoning death for us on the cross, that which God used to cancel out our guilt and enables God to forgive our sins. It is by that passive obedience of his death on the cross that provides the only grounds by which we may be accepted to God. As that wonderful hymn that we sang proclaimed, Jesus, thy blood, Jesus, your blood, Jesus, your righteousness, those, the blood of Christ and the righteousness of Christ, that's my beauty. My beauty are, that's my dress, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, wherever I am, as long as I'm dressed, covered by the blood, and dressed in the righteousness of Christ, then what else that I, do I have except with joy to be able to lift up my head? Then it rise bold, I stand in thy great day when, when I stand before the Lord God. For who ought to my charge to lay? Who's going to bring any condemnation against me as one of the children of God, fully absolved through these, these what? The blood of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear and guilt and shame. That's good news. That's the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. According to the scripture, God not only sees us then as being in Christ, as Christ in us, he's also Christ with us, he's also Christ for us, but according to this, it's also Christ on us, over us. In our study of 2 Peter not that long ago, we made mention in chapter 3 of Peter's second epistle, he repeated this phrase to describe believers. Remember what it was? He called them beloved. And we made note that how of a significant term that was because when God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, it's because of the righteousness of Christ on us that we may receive that by faith and be right with God. God says the same of us then. He says we are his beloved. We are his sons and his daughters. Oh, what blessed thought. And the magnitude of such a privileged position as to receive the righteousness of God. But this is nothing new. Paul's not making this up. And there, there have been some that in Paul's day that were charging him, oh, you're just making this stuff up, Paul. But this was predicted in the Old Testament. 
that the Christ, the Messiah, would be the righteousness of his people. In Isaiah 56, verse 1, we read this, Thus says the Lord, Preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. He's going to reveal his righteousness. And then in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, kind of continuing in that theme, notice what we read there. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And in his name, and in this Excuse me. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord. What? Our righteousness. Not about me because I can't do it. But the Lord will be our righteousness. Paul will speak of this glorious truth later in this letter. But I want you to see it now as well. In Romans chapter 5 verses 15 through 19. Paul states that although Adam's sin was imputed to us. That we got charged with Adam's sin. That everyone in Adam is charged with being guilty of sin. We read at the end of verse 19. Even so. Through the obedience, the passive and active obedience of the one, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. The many will be made righteous, not because of you, but because of the obedience of the one, you can be made righteous. We read in 1 Corinthians 1.30 this statement, but by God's doing, not your doing, by God's doing, you are now in Christ Jesus, Jesus who became to us Wisdom from God and what? And righteousness as well as sanctification and redemption. In short, this righteousness from God that Paul speaks of here in verse 17 is none other than the righteousness of Christ who is in fact God. So it is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of Christ that Paul speaks of throughout this letter which exalts the person and work of of Christ Beloved, that's at the very heart of the gospel. This is the good news, that there's a righteousness that you can have as your own. It's foreign to you. It's alien to you. You don't know anything about it until you've received it. And so the question that must be asked when we speak of the righteousness of God is not first, what is the righteousness of God? The question is, who is the righteousness of God? It is interesting to note that after making this mention of the righteousness of God, Paul will not pick up this topic of the righteousness of God until Romans chapter 3, verse 21. That's a big stretch, isn't it? This means that the concept of the righteousness from God serves as bookends in Romans 1, 20, 1 18 uh, through uh, 320. We find Paul making his indictment against human sin. And in between those bookends, in Romans 1.17 and now Romans uh, 3.21, we have this statement about a righteousness from God. Why do you need the righteousness from God? Because we're all unrighteous. And that's what verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20 does. It tells you how everyone 
is unrighteous. You think those Gentiles are bad? Yep, they're bad. They, those people that just live, they just live like wild animals? Yeah. Well, what about the moralists? Those of you that try to live by some standard, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, you have some standard. Yeah, but you're not going to make it. Well, what about the Jews? They have the very oracles, the teachings of God. Well, they're not going to make it if they're just trying to depend upon their keeping the law. And he ends chapter, he comes to chapter 3 and says, there, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he makes these statements about the righteousness from God that's available. So Paul is telling his readers that the preaching of the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness so that as the gospel is proclaimed, the way of salvation is unleashed. And it's like uh, it's unleashed on the lost like a flood that goes forth into the world, accomplishing God's eternal purposes of drawing specific sinners to himself. Paul tells us that this righteousness from God, and I love the word he uses, is revealed in the gospel. That verb revealed is in the present tense. It means whenever, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, the righteousness of God is exposed. It is always currently, presently going forth. There is not a time when the gospel is preached that the righteousness of God is not revealed. So whatever and wherever the gospel is proclaimed, the righteousness of God that sinners desperately need in order to be made right with God is continually being manifested to them. It is significant to me that Paul uses the very exact word revealed in the very next verse. Did you catch that? In verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Same exact word in the present tense. In verse 18, he says that the wrath of God is presently revealed. Rather than saying the righteousness of God is revealed, uh, presently revealed he goes to the, the the dark side as it were in other words right now in this world God is manifesting two wondrous things and they stand in contrast to one another here it is in the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness that can be yours if you will receive Christ and in the gospel that righteousness if you do not receive Christ will result in your experiencing the wrath of God because it's also being revealed presently this is the righteousness of God revealed and it brings us to our second consideration the righteousness of God received notice what he says for in it in the gospel the righteousness from God is revealed presently from faith to faith while the righteousness of God is revealed, it is being manifested for all to behold. But it must be received. And it's to be received in a very specific way. We might actually say an extreme way. Because it robs us of all notions of, of self-pride and, and accomplishment. Paul refers to it as being from faith to faith. The most literal translation of it would be this, out of faith into faith. Out of faith, for in it the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed out of faith into faith. And what Paul is saying is that this righteousness from God, a righteousness that is contained in the good news, the gospel message, is received 
in one and only in one way, by faith, from start to finish. We might say from first to last or from beginning to end. The idea is that the blessing of receiving Christ's righteousness is all of faith. Paul's making it very clear, and he will tell us this to such an nth degree, but right now he's just saying, I want you to know that there's a righteousness from God, and the only, the only place you can find it is it begins with faith. It starts with faith. It ends with faith. It is that which takes you from, from being a babe in Christ to being fully mature in Christ. It is, Christ, it is faith from beginning to end and everywhere in the middle. What Paul stresses in this little phrase is that our righteous standing before God is never to be understood as having been earned, never to be understood as though any of our efforts make a difference. The moment we begin to take credit for our relationship with Christ, we have denied the righteousness of Christ and our need of it. Do you realize that even in the best of our efforts, we are tainted by sin. Y'all came here this morning to worship the Lord. Praise God. You got dressed up. You looked good. You sang songs. Do you know that sin followed you in the door? Sin is present in you right now. And sin taints everything we do. And so if you think you're going to be made acceptable because you made it to church today, you don't understand the scripture. The reason why you have been accepted by God is not because you made it to church, although you need to come to church. Not because you read your Bible, but you need to read your Bible. But the reason why you are in right standing with God must be remembered. It's by the righteousness of Christ alone. I receive that by faith. I believe that. To be true, because that's what God's word teaches us. So we need to remember that sin follows us in whatever we do. We are inherently sinful. We are inherently unrighteous. We deserve the wrath of God that verse 18 talks about. But if we are in Christ, again, Romans 5.1, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, or uh, um, well, that's a good verse too, but uh, uh, therefore there is now uh, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this righteousness from God, this righteousness from Christ can be ours. It is a free gift given to sinners. And how do you obtain it? Not by the works of your hands, but by faith alone. By trusting in, believing on Jesus Christ. Paul picks up this idea later in Romans. We made reference to it, but in Romans 3, 21 and 22, we read this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness from God has been manifested. It's been revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, you can go back and see that it was promised. We read some of those statements that the Lord is our righteousness. That's what it, it will be said. It has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness from God. Now, where does it come from? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Those are glorious words. That's good news. All you need is faith in Jesus Christ. And the righteousness 
which is from God, that will make you right with God, that will give you joy in this life and the next life, that promises you eternal life, that gives you hope in this world for the next. All you do is believe, and then God changes you. Truly, the righteousness of God had been manifested in the Old Testament law, but in the Old Testament, it is interesting, while there are these little glimpses of, of a righteousness that saves, so often the righteousness of God in the Old Testament, Paul will even say it, the law brought the sense of death. The law brought condemnation because, well, let's just take the Ten Commandments for a moment. Well, who, uh, who among us here can read through the Ten Commandments and say we have not broken those at some time or another? And what did Ezekiel say? The soul that sins will die. But now in the New Testament, there's a clear revelation that the righteousness from God is not simply that which brings condemnation. There's a righteousness that's available to all who believe, that righteousness that brings hope rather than despair and life rather than death. The church father, John Chrysostom, rightly noted you do not receive God's righteousness by toils and labors, but you receive it by a gift from above, contributing one thing only from yourself, namely, believing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. But I need to do something. Believe that Christ did it all. Jesus paid it all. To all to him I owe, as if I could ever pay him back. This is keeping with the testimony of Scripture, even what we read in, in John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. You didn't earn the right. He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who do what? You must believe on his name. So I ask you, do you believe? On his name. Do you believe Jesus is sufficient? Jesus is enough. That Jesus is so glorious that he left his father's throne above and he came and he dwelt on this earth and he was mocked and ridiculed and scorned, but he lived a perfect life of obedience even when there was pressure for him to not do that. Pressure given on him from the devil himself. Yet he did all to the glory of God. So that his righteousness could become your righteousness. Have you received him? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly, completely lean on Jesus' name. The righteousness of God is to be received. And it can only be received by faith. And if it is received, you will find that you have an escape from the wrath of God that is going to be yours if you do not believe. But understand that faith is not the basis of our acceptance with God. Faith is simply the open hand that receives the righteousness of Christ, receives his merit, receives his perfection, and that's what God offers us. And it brings us to our final point, the righteousness of God rehearsed. 
the righteousness of God rehearsed. Here Paul makes his first appeal to an Old Testament text, specifically Habakkuk. That's the one you read all the time, right? Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. It's interesting that Paul will quote from the Old Testament some 60 times. You know there's two authors in the, in the New Testament that quote from the Old Testament prolifically. Paul here in Romans quotes uh, the Old Testament some 60 times. And Matthew, if you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, he also quotes from the Old Testament some 60 times. What does that tell us? It tells us that Paul had a great familiarity with the Old Testament. But why does Paul choose Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 that says, but the righteous shall live by faith? What was going on in the book of Habakkuk that made God make that statement that the, the righteous man shall live by faith? Well, let me give you a, a couple of reasons why Paul uses this. And first, Paul quoting Habakkuk would cause his readers to ask that question I just asked you. What was going on in Habakkuk's day? Well, guess what was going on in Habakkuk's day? God's wrath is being revealed. And it's being revealed against God's people for their disobedience. God is inflicting his judgment upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Babylonians. And what Paul or what Habakkuk was communicating to the people of his day is that the only way that you're going to escape the wrath of God is to live by faith. What's Paul about to do in the very next verse? The only way you're going to escape the wrath of God your sins deserve is to make sure you're living this life by faith. It is by faith that sinners in every age will escape the wrath of God. The point is that the righteousness that is revealed by faith alone is not a new doctrine. It is consistent with the teaching of Scripture. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him, counted to him as what? Righteousness. He didn't do anything. Paul's going to go into that in Romans chapter 4. You want to talk about trying to earn your way? There's no law for Abraham. How did he make it to, to be in right standing with God? Did he keep the law? No. Did he get circumcised? No, because he was told that he was righteous prior to any of these things. If a person is to be rescued then from God's judgment, it must be through faith in the person and work of God this gospel that calls sinners to trust in the person and work of Christ is accomplished on Calvary for the forgiveness of sin. This faith righteousness is opposed to a works righteousness. It is only an always righteousness by which God justifies, declares righteous the guilty. Paul using Habakkuk 2.4 again makes this clear. And he uses it again in Galatians chapter 3.11 saying now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. Then he quotes the same verse, the righteous man shall live by faith. 
Well, that's the first reason. The second reason I believe Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2.4 is really to set the stage for us as we go into the meat of the letter. He will encourage and challenge his readers to live out this life of faith. The righteous person, how does he live? By faith. He doesn't just come to Christ by faith and then goes off and does whatever he wants. He lives his life by faith in Christ. This is the life that is pleasing to the Lord. The Christian life, we said, begins and ends with faith. It is also then lived out in the in-between by faith. I come to Christ by faith. I will be in heaven by faith. And in this interim, I live by faith in Christ and his word. In other words, we are to rehearse our faith. What does that mean to rehearse? It means to practice, right? You're practicing for the the big day, as it were. We keep living this life out that God has given me. What we believe about the righteousness of Christ given to us is to affect how we live our lives in the present as we seek to live a life that reflects Christ and his righteous character. Now, Paul will not deal with this, what the life of faith looks like explicitly. He kind of makes mention of it here, but he's going to take 11 chapters to talk about the gospel. First eight chapters specifically, and then he talks about Israel in chapters 9 through 11. And then guess what he does beginning in Romans chapter 12? He starts talking about what does the life of faith look like? He gets very practical. What does this life of faith look like? And and Paul will explore what that life of faith looks like for the believer. And so as has come with many of Paul's letters, we're going to find that we, he, he likes to begin the first half of most of his letters talking about doctrine, about what we're supposed to believe about God and Christ and sin and man. And then the second half of his letters, he starts dealing with what we would say duty, doctrine then duty. We might say what we believe and then how we are going to behave. In other words, we are to rehearse. We are to practice this gospel. If you've received the righteousness of God from God by faith, then guess what? Live it out. Let it change you. Let it be your worldview. Let it affect everything you do. Let it be as Ephesians 2.29 says, let no unwholesome word come forth from your mouth except that which would edify according to the need of the moment. And so what are we saying? That's the life of faith. I believe that my mouth is not my own. It's for God. I believe that my works are not my own. They're for God. I believe that my thoughts should not be my own, but they should be for God. And so I take every thought captive, make it obedient to Christ. As we close and prepare ourselves to receive the Lord's Supper, let me make this challenge to you. I would encourage you to know the gospel as it is presented to us in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, as best as you can. Because the sad truth is most people, even professing Christians, do not really grasp the depth and wonder of the gospel. While there are certainly many who do not darken the doors of a church who desperately need to hear you proclaim the gospel, I submit to you that there are many who have erroneous views of the gospel. They've equated the gospel with health, wealth, and prosperity. But that's not what Paul speaks of here at all. There are others who would say that the gospel is simply the pathway to successful Christian living. Well, 
It may have something to do with that, but the main goal is that you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone. What is the gospel in a nutshell? I should have put this up on the screen, but here we go. Just have to listen. The gospel is the righteousness from God revealed. A righteousness that is man's only remedy against his greatest malady. Oh, I do have it. The gospel informs us how to be acceptable in God's sight, acceptable according to God's own standard, and that is to be received, uh, that is to receive the perfect and complete righteousness of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Because we lack the perfect righteousness of God, we must receive the perfect righteousness from God as provided through Christ alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the righteousness of Christ. That we gaze upon him and we know because he's both God and man that all that he did as man was perfect. And we come to recognize that he did live out his human life perfectly to both glorify you and then to provide for us that perfect righteousness that we need if we would ever be made right with you. We thank you that it's by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ that we are saved, that we have been changed, that we receive the hope of eternal life. I pray, Father God, that each and every heart would understand these truths, that we would delight in them, Father, as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, that we would come to recognize that as we partake of the bread and drink of the cup, that these are but symbols, that we're partaking of the righteousness of Christ, his body broken for us so that ours would be healed, his blood shed for us so that our sins would be forgiven. We thank you for such glorious truths and such expressions of your love that you, God, demonstrate your own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, bless our time as we continue to worship you. We ask and pray in Jesus' name.